It's also quite simple to learn at the end of the day as well. I think most people can at least pick up a majority of the syntax in a weekend or in a week. It does take a lot longer to become an expert, but it's easy to pick up that early language syntax. I saw some comments on, I think it was on this actual article, where part of the simplicity is also like the density per line. Mm -hmm. Like every line is simple. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like there's not these 40 ternary statements long where I don't know what's returning. That's one of the big parts of the simplicity to me, like that all the code is the same density. It's easy to look at each line. Even the forming thing being the same everywhere. Exactly. Always dive to that familiar patterns. Exactly. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog so you don't miss it. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our show super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Good evening, morning, and afternoon, everyone, from wherever you're joining us. And I'm Natalie, and I'm joined today by Ian and Chris. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you all doing? Doing well. It's a beautiful but very warm day, the end of May. It's like 90 degrees outside, so mm-hmm. it's quite sweltering. Here, it's freezing. It's a single digit Celsius this morning. Oh, which is not far from snow, but far enough to for it definitely not to happen. So today, this episode is our news episode. And you can see that because I'm holding a pen and I see all these news anchors do that. So we will be talking about what is uh, new and interesting in the Go world. And we'll cover four interesting things from the recent news with my interpreters for the field of Go. There goes the pen. Okay, so first uh, thing that we... Many of us probably saw in an email or an announcement or in a tweet is that GopherCon US is moving from Florida to Chicago and from the end of September to the beginning of October, specifically October 6 through 8. And the reason that of that being is that in Florida, recent two bills were passed or in progress of passing. Keep me honest, I'm not from the US. One is about what parents can say and not say, or schools can say in the context of gay people. I take that from the name, don't say gay. And the second one is a law about abortions that when things pass, then in Florida, this will be not allowed starting week 15. Yeah. So for those of us from not the US, can you say how much of my knowledge is up to date or correct? Yeah, the don't say gay bill, I think is, it has been passed in Florida. So, and it's just like, it's one of those, weirdly vaguely worded bills as well where it's just like you're not allowed to talk about gender identity in school but clearly targeted at we don't want kids hearing about gayness and queerness when they're in school so yeah that's definitely happening and yeah there's a lot of just many many states are attempting to pass abortion bans many states in the south but yeah that's and in their announcement they they went over both those things and said this is part of the reason why we're why we're moving venues as a conference organizer myself, I can say that this is definitely an expensive decision. 
just not doing a conference in the place where we plan to do it due to simple reason like COVID back in 2020, that was a huge headache and a definite financial uh, implications to that. So I can only imagine what is it like in the US? What are your thoughts on that? I think this is a good move. I think it's representative of our, of our community and I think it's kind of brave of them to do it despite the cost and looking forward to going to Chicago. Fingers crossed as well that by the time October rolls around that we're not in the middle of another spike with COVID because I think that'll also be a thing that people have to kind of like wonder about now because it felt like we were kind of mm-hmm. through all of this and they and they did an announcement kind of bring up like one of the reasons they wanted to leave Florida as well is like the kind of lackluster to put it nicely uh response that Florida had to the pandemic and how mm-hmm. absolutely crazy things got down there so I think it's the same sort of thing of like okay well even if it's in Chicago if there's still like you know we have a giant COVID spike and a lot of our travelers are international like are they going to be able to get into the country? If they do, are they going to be able to get back into their home countries easily? Mm. So there's like a lot of questions around like in-person conferences. But I, I am excited that they are still trying mm-hmm. to do an in-person conference at the end of the day. I'm glad it's not just like, okay, well, we can't do it in Florida, so we're going to do another virtual conference like we did last year. I think it's good that they're trying to do an in-person thing. Yeah, I do realize that like in-person conferences are a huge risk. I think we just saw that with like... Uh, the Kubernetes conference and all that. Mm -hmm. But there is not a replacement for the in-person. I wouldn't know you, Chris, if I didn't go to one of these conferences, you know, like there's just not a replacement for it. So I am excited that they're trying to do it. Yeah. And hopefully in future years, we won't have as many problems with COVID at least. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard about the Google DDoS. What happened? For those who have not read about that. Yeah. So apparently this is a knock-on effect of the design of modules so for those of you that don't know how the internals of, I hear your sigh, Ian. Um, <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, like what came with the module system is we got this thing of module proxies. And there's the big one that you know everybody uses by default that's owned and operated by Google. And essentially what it's doing is it's going out and it's doing a full Git clone of repositories that are in the module proxy index. And there's this one... Git hosting site called, uh, what's it, SourceHut. And they've been getting about 5% of their overall traffic is just the Go module proxy hitting them and downloading the Go Git repositories that are hosted on their service, which is a tremendous amount of traffic. And at the end of the day, like the thing you pay for, I think, more than anything else when you're hosting Git is bandwidth and is traffic. So basically, they're just getting DDoSed every day by this module proxy that exists. And I think this is another thing. I promise I'll get off my inclusion soapbox eventually. But this person didn't just like write a blog post whining about this. They did try and actually go to the, you know, the maintainers of Go and be like, hey, can you please fix this? And they were basically told, this isn't a priority. We're not going to do anything about this. Sorry. They're kind of just stuck like paying all of these costs at the end of the day for this bandwidth. Because they can't just like block the Go module proxy because then any get repositories that are hosted there just would kind of stop working. Like they wouldn't get updates or things like that. Yeah. Google's answer to this is like, hey, uh, email us and give us your domain and we'll we'll block the like the periodic refresh to your servers. Like we'll just stop doing that. But you have to submit a ticket or email us or it doesn't seem scalable. Or DDoS with requests. Exactly. And Chris, you said it was a result of the module system. I'm not sure I totally agree with that take. I think it's more a result of However, Google has under the hood 
created this proxy. But yeah, we're, we're SourceOut is seeing multiple requests for the same module, like multiple times a minute. So obviously there is some some redundant traffic happening that does not need to be probably at the end of the day. I think you're right there that it's not part of modules, but I feel like if modules had been designed slightly differently, so it's like modules at the end of the day are designed to be like agnostic of like Git or any of this stuff. So I feel like it's like a small failing there that like the proxies weren't designed in a way that didn't need to like depend on Git as much as they are. Or maybe my knowledge of the internals of modules is kind of old and rusty. So maybe it is designed in this way. Maybe it truly is just Google's proxy. That is a problem that needs to get fixed. But but either way, it's like this type of stuff. Like if you wanted to kind of like self-host your own Git, your own modules via Git repository, like this is going to hit you and you're going to have to pay the cost of this thing just coming back and just doing useless pulls of your Git repositories. That's just going to, especially if you have large projects, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And that way, it's a kind of like, if you're someone that doesn't necessarily want to put all your stuff on GitHub or you don't want to put it on GitLab or any of these other centrally hosted services, you're kind of just stuck, I guess, like dealing with this extra cost. It's like a tax that you have to pay for not wanting to be part of like a, a centralized platform. To me, this kind of brings up the issue, like why is the module proxy controlled by Google? Why is it closed sourced? Why, why can't we go look and see why this traffic is happening. Like, it seems at odds with kind of the principles of our community. Yeah, which is really weird too, because I remember in the early days, you know, there was Athens, there were all these other projects that are still around, but just not nearly as active that were there. So it it does feel a little weird that it's just like this piece of infrastructure is owned and operated by Google. I mean, I think there's also plenty of other companies that would be happy to help operate this, because at the end of the day, it's not just like Google that uses Go, it's also... You know, I think as pointed out in one of the article, other articles we're going to talk about today, like every cloud provider has Go at their core. So mm-hmm. there's no reason why we couldn't have a module proxy by Microsoft or by Amazon or even by some of the other CDNs like Fastly. To me as a gopher, it feels weird that like Google has used its position to put something into the Go ecosystem that people can't really change, like people can change it, but they just don't know about it. So by using Go by default, you're just opting into this module proxy. When they could have done it a different way, they could have said, okay, well, they could have suggested that you use the Go proxy, the Google proxy, or like given you some options or done anything, but they just chose to do it this way, which kind of sucks too, because I was always one of those gophers that like defended Go to such a high degree. Because I was like, Google does not control Go. Like, look at all of these people that are contributors to Go. Like, the people that can actually submit plus two a code review, the majority of them don't work at Google. Although now that is also a thing that is dead and doesn't, you can't do that anymore. You can still plus two, but you can't actually get the merge approved without having a Google employee sign off on it. So there's like these steps that have been happening that just make it feel like Google is trying to wrangle control over Go again, which just doesn't, doesn't really feel good for an open source community project, especially when the answer to, hey, there are these problems with this thing that you built that you are unintentionally forcing everybody to use is, well, sorry, we aren't going to put in the resources to actually fix that problem for you. I think that you can't have it both ways. It's really kind of not cool to like say, well, we're going to have this control over everything, but we're also not going to invest the resources into making sure that it is not harming people actively. Sorry. Okay. I promise I will get off my soapbox and stop. <laughs> <laughs> stop ranting about things.
next thing we will chat about is the article that reflects about uh, Go and was written by the five creators at the Association of Computer Machinery Magazine. And that article was uh, recapping who were the early users of Go, why the users chose to stay, and what were the design decisions that made Go what it is. And for anybody who's familiar with the language, you're probably not going to hear anything new, but it's still interesting to recap this. So who do you see uh, the early users? Why did they come? What did they like about the language? There is one thing I want to point out real quick before we jump into it, is that I did find it interesting that like uh, Russ Cox and Ian Lance Taylor are included here as like the core people that helped create the language. Because I think it's always like, you know, when you think about it, you think it's like, okay, Rob Pike, Robert Griesmer, Ken Thompson, those are the creators of Go. So I think it's it's nice that some of those people that did a lot of the early work, like, I mean, the reason we have a bootstrapped compiler is because Russ spent a lot of time figuring out how to get all of this massive C code base into Go. So I do want to call out that it's really cool that they included these other two people that have been hugely influential on Go from the beginning. To answer the question you had, I think that the early users of Go, I think were probably a mix of people that were really interested in this idea of a programming language that has this core of simplicity. I think around the same time, the early versions of Go started to become popular was the same time that Rich Hickey had his talk called Simple Made Easy. And there was a lot of thought in the software engineering ecosystem and world about like, how do we simplify software? How do we make it easier to build things and not have all of this complexity that comes with other languages? So I think at least I know for myself and a bunch of people I know, like that was one of the things that drew us to Go in the early days. That would be my next question. When and why did you join? Ian, you want to take that first? Sure, I think... I wanted to hear Ian's first. If you want to answer, then also, if you want to share in addition, who do you recognize as the first, as the early users would be interesting to? Or why did they come? Like, what did they like it in the language? Familiarity with the people. Yeah, so I don't have much familiarity. Familiar, I can't even say the word. With the people. I think I came to go a little bit later. Like, go 1.8, maybe? 1.5, something like that. And... The way I came to it was basically my company said, hey, you got the choice between Go and C Sharp and, you know, went Go. I mean, for a lot of the same reasons, right? Like just the simplicity and the, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, that was the worst answer I've done so far, but. No, that's a perfect ramp to my next question. But first, Chris, do you want to share when and why did you join Go? Yes, I think I've shared it a number of times, actually. So the main thing is like, when I started my career, I was writing a lot of Drupal, PHP. It was very, very, very complex. And this one day, I went to this full stack engineering meetup where I met Sam Boyer. And Sam and I were both in the Drupal community at the time. And I was describing to him how frustrated I was with Drupal. I was like, there's all these things that are like annoying and I don't like it. And he looked at me and he said, I know what that is. Like, that's complexity. You don't like complexity. You like simplicity. You should go try out Go. And you should go, you look at this language and see how you like it. And that's literally... You should go test it. Go test Go. That's literally how it happened. It's just like Sam Boyer just like met him one night and he was literally like, hey, I think you'd like this other thing. I understand your frustrations. And then basically, like I think a couple months later, or not even a couple, I think a couple weeks later, I was like, I like this language. This is going to become my like professional language. Now, this is going to be a language that I write the majority of the software that I write going forward. So it was just kind of like a... Not love at first sight, but definitely something that I just was like, yeah, no, this is great. Absolutely love it. Like, let's go. Oh, God, I'm going to say go so many times in different ways. 
<laughs> let's go. But yeah, that's how I got into the, you know, got into writing Go. So Ian and Chris, you both mentioned simplicity, and that's very interesting. I had a conversation last week with VP and R&D of a Berliner startup that is doing mostly B2B things. And I always like asking people why, if they use Go and if they say no, whether they evaluated that, and if they say yes, then I'm always curious to hear why not Go. So his answer was that a couple of years back, five years or so, he was a developer at a company that was using Go. And he even attended one of the meetups in Berlin. And his memories and his impressions from the language at the time is that this is like a super optimization language. And check out my talk of how I changed two lines in the compiler and like shaved off a few more milliseconds. And then he said, and you know, overall, like, yes, we have SLAs. We're way, way far from that. So we don't need the fanciness of Go. We went for something simple like Python. And then I said, but wait, and he's like, I know you're going to pitch Go to me. I know you. Um, <laughs> but this was very interesting for me that for him, and he sampled Go back then and did not check on it again. And for him, this is like a fancy language for great optimizations and actually not something with simplicity. I think it comes down to like how you see simplicity. Because I think simplicity is not one of those words that's like really, really slippery. Like there is like Python along a lot of domains, along a lot of axes is a simple language. But it's not simple in the way that Go is simple, right? Go is simple in, if you haven't seen it, Rich Hickey's talk, Simple Made Easy. Very, very good talk. And I think it kind of defines it well. Is that like simplicity doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy or that you can get started quickly. In fact, simplicity a lot of time means that you're going to wind up getting started slower. But it means in the long run, things remain simple. That is harder to introduce complexity, right? It's simplicity as anti-complexity. And I think if you look at, most other languages you wind up with, like it's just lots of complexity after a few hours or days of coding. Whereas in Go, I found that it's like the language pushes back on you a lot if you try and do things in an overly complex way. Like I think like for a lot of years, there was this kind of marketing of Go as like, oh, we have Go routines and channels. I remember even myself sitting down and writing like tons of code with channels all over the place. And it felt awful like absolutely awful and i was like oh i've made this mistake i will not make this mistake again channels should be used judiciously they should not be just sprinkled all throughout your code base and i learned that lesson and i haven't done that since i think other languages probably would have made it so that you could keep just using channels everywhere because like hey this is like a core feature of the language it's like a nice thing we'll just like bolt some more features onto channels like i think there's bad multiple proposals to like make things like error handling with channels easier and it's just like no because that will violate the sim the higher level simplicity of go as a whole like channels are meant to be this simple object and if it doesn't fit your use case you're probably using the wrong thing and there might be something else that's a better fit for you so it's simple in that way, not necessarily that it's like simple to get started with or simple to bootstrap an application with. There are certainly other languages that are easier for that. It's also quite simple to learn at the end of the day as well. I think most people can at least pick up a majority of the syntax in a weekend or in a week. It does take a lot longer to become an expert, but it's easy to pick up that early like language syntax. I saw some comments on, I think it was on this actual article, where part of the simplicity is also like the density per line. Like, mm -hmm. like every line is simple. Does that make sense? Every, mm -hmm. like there's not these 40 ternary statements long where I don't know what's returning. 
that's one of the big parts of the simplicity to me, like is that all the code is the same density. It's easy to look at each line, like even the forming thing being the same everywhere. Exactly. You always dive to that familiar patterns. Exactly. And they kind of talk about that in the article where they say part of the reason it stayed around is the environment, right? Like mm-hmm. all the great tooling, all the great like go format, mm-hmm. go. Yeah, I remember, I don't know if it was a talk Andrew Duran gave or if I was like just talking to him, but I remember this comment he made about, no, I think it definitely was in one of his talks where he was talking about how like he, they went and looked at, oh, like a bunch of Go on GitHub and I found out that all the open source Go they could see, like 98% of it had been Go fomented already. So it was like already in that nice format. Um, I remember that being another one of those early things that I was like, yes, this is nice. Like it was novel very novel at the time for a language to ship with a formatter that was just very easy to run and that you were expected to run. And there is no like, there's no negotiation. It's like, oh, but I like to put brackets on the next line. Well, too bad. You're not allowed to do that. And if you do that, someone else will just run GoFund in the code base and it'll just correct it. So like, there's a lot of like, that's another element of simplicity there because then it's like, you know, you go to any code base, you find a GitHub and you can just read it. You're not annoyed because like the brackets are on different lines or like the there's some other spacing issue that you don't like that you would prefer to be a different way. It's like, no, no, this is just the way that Go looks. So I, I definitely agree with them that like, yeah, the tooling around Go is absolutely one of the things that mm-hmm. kind of solidified it in the ecosystem. Yeah, I'm doing these days more Python than Go, unfortunately. And uh, one of the reasons is that, as you mentioned, Chris, that this is a quick language to just ship things fast and then later deal with the consequences. Not necessarily very happy with that, but you know, disagree and commit. I do feel that after so many years of doing only Go and like being everything same pattern, always recognizing whatever code base you're entering, like new company, existing company, this is just so confusing. Like I spent so much time that feels unnecessary on just realizing like, where am I? What is this fancy line doing? Like you said, Ian, like each line is not necessarily always readable. And this is not because a bad developer wrote that. It's just because it's not necessarily a thing in many languages, not just Python. And I think that also the fact that this is so, goal is so consistent and always looks the same is very useful when we are in this, stage where tools like Copilot are being introduced into our world (laughs) as developers. This is something that is super easy to use with Go because it will always do the right thing. But with different languages like Python, it will sometimes do the right thing. Sometimes it will be like a mix of, this is too much, like two different input. Here's something that is a mix, but doesn't really work or just does not fit the code base. So it's also one of the reasons I personally think that Languages like Go will survive going forward, and other languages that are more mix of things will slowly go away. Yeah, that's a great point with like the Copilot. Like, I didn't thought about like using Copilot in a different language, and it just spits out code, and you're like, "What is this?" <laughs> you're from a different story. That's just not how I do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did get some nice commentary from Bill Kennedy in the GoTime channel. Oh. Shout out to the GoTime channel. If you're in Gopher Slack, you should join GoTime FM. 
That's where we're, we're always hanging out when we're doing the live recordings for this. I'll just read what he said and then we kind of discuss it a little. It was back when we were talking about the module proxy and the issues with, you know, someone getting DDoSed by it. And he says, I don't see it like this. I see it as this is a system that provides security and durability for Go projects. They built a system which they run and manage for the community. They publish the API and anyone can build a system such as Athens. They are not controlling anything. They are spending money and time to provide a system that must be stable and available. We should be thanking them for this. You know how hard it is to open source anything from big companies like Google. And I do understand that sentiment. Like, I, I think I agree with Bill there. Like, I am happy that this exists. I think that for the community at large, this is great. Like, having a module proxy, making it so that you don't have to configure it is absolutely fantastic. Like, I see how they arrived at the decision to just include it in the, you know, default Go binary that ships. And I think we should be, you know, thankful and happy for them for building this. I do have another thought on this, but I want to give Ian, Natalie, if you want to also respond to this a little bit. Yeah, I, I do think it's like really easy to forget how much like monetary support these big companies do provide like communities like Go, right? And I do think we should be grateful in some regards, but like in other regards, this does, they're not doing this solely out of like goodwill. Philanthropy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They are getting something in return, right? Like having Go as a strong community provides them programmers they can hire, expands the job pool. It does a lot of different things for Google. So I also don't want to forget that it's also a benefit for them to have a strong community. We do should appreciate the support. And also, it's a good point of having something that is the stable thing to go to. Pros and cons. Uh... Yeah. So I think my larger take on this is that I, I do agree. We should be thankful for them for putting out the effort to do this. But I also think that when it comes to underrepresented communities or underrepresented people, we're always like a small minority of things. So whenever something like this happens and like it's a small minority of people that get affected, like often people like it's just swept under the rug that this is a problem for some people. Like I mentioned, like small entrepreneurs or people that just want like they have uh, like ethical or moral or they just feel strongly about not centrally hosting things like this is a cost for them. And as a community by Google doing this, we've said to them, you get to pay an extra tax for this, which is a way of saying to people, you're not as welcome in our community. Which, if that's something we want to say because it's better for the greater good of Go, I think that's that's a fine thing. Like, that's a trade-off we can make. But I think the thing I was trying to point out here is that this is like an actual trade-off that happens at the end of the day. And big companies have a habit of doing this sort of thing and harming underrepresented communities by doing this sort of thing. And if we just keep going on, like thanking them for everything they do, we don't necessarily resolve that problem at the end of the day. Which is obviously a tough thing to talk about because once again, like this is not a topic that people usually consider to be polite conversation or things like that. It's like, but no, they are, they are doing a good service. So it's like, we should appreciate that. But at the end of the day, as someone from a plethora of marginalized backgrounds, it's like, it's tough for me when I see other people that are not thought of as marginalized, other people that don't get the spotlight as much are suffering and they don't get necessarily the same amount of recognition. They just kind of have to put up and deal with it. And some more response. Uh, thank you, Bill, for being a member of this conversation in some way. This is interesting. No, Bill does bring up something nice. It's a small team, very little runway. Like that probably is something we forget. Like, even behind these big companies are just people on teams and yeah. 
No, it's like, and that's the same thing too. It's like, oh, well, like at the end of the day, like the Go team is also a minority. Like they're very small. Like there's a couple million Gophers and there's like a couple dozen people on the Go team. So it's like their need to be prioritized as well. And what they can do needs to be prioritized as well. So it's like, I think at the end of the day, what I'm trying to express here is that there is no simple or easy answer to this question. Aside from maybe Google spending a bit more money on the Go team and like questions about, I think the thing I brought up in the first place, which is like, it's fine if you want to build this sort of stuff, but when it harms people, like, got to shell a little bit more money. I understand you've shelled out a lot of money already, and that's like a tough thing to do. But like, that's part of how we actually do this thing. And that's like one of the things that at the end of the day annoys me a lot. And once again, we're heading right into Pride Month, so this is a big thing, is when people don't want to walk the walk after they've talked the talk. Everybody wants to be like, yeah, we support queer rights, or we support marginalized communities, or we support diversity and inclusion, but then it gets hard. And they're like, but this is hard, so now we don't want to do it anymore. And it's like, well, then you didn't really support the thing. That does damage to those people because they thought they had your support, and now, now they don't. And people might have gone to your company, and they might have done something, they might have gotten themselves in a situation that they wouldn't have otherwise. So you, you can't actually do actual harm to people through these sorts of things. Thank you so much, Bill, for bringing this up. I think it's super important to have more balanced look. I can see how what I said was a little bit, maybe too much on the, on the other side of things. But yeah, I, I also love this type of like discussion that we get to have with our listeners in GoTime FM. So if you're not in there and you're listening, go jump into that channel now. It's, it's really great. And as a shout out to Google for this, uh, reading what Bill wrote more, as we were chatting, um, Google has provided GoBridge over 200K in donations over the past few years, which is amazing. And it always translates in people coming to conferences or being able to do things that they would not be able to do otherwise. And the Go team has lost some resources over the past few months. And this last release burnt out a lot of the team members. Shout out to you for being great. Thank you. It's hard to balance everything. This episode, how to manage your resources, Everything. Engineering is all about trade-offs. Yeah. And we do have one more topic that we want to get to, so. Which can maybe act as a potentially unpopular opinion. Maybe yes, maybe not. A recent proposal by Thomas Eckert on lightweight anonymous function syntax. He pointed it out to us. I don't know if he made the actual proposal, though. Definitely worth He sent it to us. checking again before I'm saying wrong things. <laughs> Thank you for pointing this out. Maybe this can be corrected afterwards. This proposal seems back in the milieu. Let's chat about that in our remaining five minutes. Yes, I think this proposal is getting a lot of conversation because it's somewhat polarizing. Would you agree with that? Some people love it, some people hate it. That's why it's made our way to be our somewhat of an unpopular opinion Yeah. for today, given it's all host today. Personally, I, I am a fan. I mean, I especially the part that like, Robert Griesmer's done in the last 12 days. I love this. I think before I would have been kind of against it, but I think like once again, used appropriately, used judiciously, I think this could help clean up a lot of code. There's definitely some things I've done before where I'm just like, okay, I'm writing like all of this boilerplate function definition stuff. And I have like the actual boilerplate makes up more of the function than the actual functiony parts of the function. Should we take a second and explain what this proposal actually is? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yes. And mention, thanks for, to Bill's feedback, that this is an old feature request that recently resurfaced. Yeah. Yes. So basically, Robert Griesmer, in this issue, which we'll have linked, brought up this idea of having basically 
a more concise way to define functions. So similar to the fat arrow syntax that is in JavaScript. And he basically gave us like, you know, gives kind of two different examples of how to do this. Mostly like either aligning the func keyword and having a fat arrow or keeping the func keyword and removing parentheses around the arguments. And then also as a, a secondary part that's not something you have to do as part of this, but is related, is removing return or not having to specify return if there's a single value that's being returned from one of these you know, more compact functions. I am 100% against ever having implicit returns. There should never be a return without the return keyword, even in these small anonymous functions. I, I would say no to this proposal, like all the way, just on that single point. Yeah, maybe this will be an un- unpopular opinion. Because I don't know, I when I look at the examples and I look at that code, like I can obviously see, like maybe if it was also just like, if it's multi-line, you're not allowed to not specify the return. But when I look at this like compact code, I'm like, oh, but this is like, it gets to the point so much quicker. Like I understand it so much easier. But I can also see how it could be like, just like you shouldn't have uh, naked returns where you don't specify the return values because you've defined them in the function definition. Like I think that if you have a longer, like more than one line or more than maybe a couple of lines, you should have to specify the return. So I think it will, like that's one of the things, I don't know if it's, I think, yeah, in JavaScript, you don't have to specify the return. It'll just like return the last thing. And that's always confusing to me because I'm just like, where is this return value? I'm like, oh, right. It just does it magically for you. There's some talk in the the issue on GitHub about kind of changing the syntax so you can just not specify the function parameter types or return types, just the names instead. I think that actually goes quite a ways to get there. We already allow for some of the generic stuff. You can omit generic types. You can all this. So I'm not sure it takes away too much from understanding, but I do think we it's a slippery slope here, right? Like we got to be careful not to make things opaque. To summarize this, I want to read yet another message from Bill, which I really like. Uh, let's not make things easy to do. Let's focus on making things easy to understand. This circles back very nicely to our previous conversation about simplicity and how nice it is in Go. And I like that about the language. It's great to keep for sure. Let's say we had the two and four unpopular opinion now. <laughs> kind of discussed that, although it was quite popular, but there's all sorts of opinions out there. And this has been an interesting hour. Uh, I think it's the first time we tried this format, at least from what I know, that we're kind of not yeah, going I, for a topic and discussing, but actually just going over what happened recently. I feel like we should have more of these like nice little, let's do some coverage of Go News and talk about things. And Although hopefully in the future, it's not me being on a soapbox. <laughs> so what is a soapbox? For those who, <laughs> so those who still reside outside of the U.S., a soapbox. Quite literally, it's like an actual like crate they used to ship soap in. But the terminology comes from when you used to have like a little like town square where someone wanted to give a speech, mm, like a Hyde Park thing. They would put a soapbox down and stand on top of it so they could be above everybody else, so everybody could hear them in the crowd. Mm-hmm. So it's like when you get up on a soapbox, you're kind of like it's kind of like preaching or basically like talking to a gathering of people. Lots of learnings in today's episode. Thank you. Yeah, I like the diversity of this panel too, because it's like we got, you know, we got you who's not in the U.S. and has never lived in the U.S., so you're like not in tune with this stuff. So it's like we got two people from the U.S. Although I thought I do speak some American, but 
Nope. <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> there's a lot of American to learn. I think there's some people in America that don't speak American, so. Chris and Ian and everybody who listened, thank you very much for joining. It was a great conversation and see you next week. This show isn't finished quite yet. We wanted to flow you through the news stories, but the gang had an extended discussion around conferences, what it means to be family friendly, and how organizers can speak inclusively about perks for partners. That's coming up next, but we do want to thank our longtime partners at Fastly for making sure GoTime reaches you super fast wherever you listen. Thanks also to our Beat Freakin' residents, Breakmaster Cylinder, and thank you for listening. We appreciate you spending time with us. That's all from me. I'll talk to you next time on GoTime. There was another thing that I wanted to point out about this, and it's like a slight criticism, I guess, of the, I guess like it was a criticism of the way they were framing the conference in Florida, right? And it's around one key phrase that I think a lot of people don't understand as a dog whistle, but it is a dog whistle, and it's the phrase family friendly. And I've seen it pop up a bunch of times in the Go community. Mm-hmm. So I want to have like a little bit of a conversation around that because it's one of those like diversity and inclusion things that I think is like super important that we actually talk about. But for those listeners who don't know, family friendly in the United States is a conservative dog whistle. And if you don't know what a dog whistle is, it's basically a way of like saying something that seems innocent, but is a way of basically like crying out or rallying people that support you. It's a dog whistle for the conservatives that is basically anti-queer, anti-trans. It's the justification that a lot of states' legislatures have used for bathroom bills and for even things like the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida. So it's kind of startling to see that in a post about, you know, we're trying to be more inclusive, we're trying to be more welcoming of people, but then to just have that kind of anti-queer thing sticking in the middle of it, it's just kind of like, whoa, okay, like this is sending some mixed signals here some mixed messaging. So I'd like to like chat about that a little bit and get maybe your perspective, Natalie, as someone who's like not in the US, who's someone that probably hasn't heard this stuff before. Yeah, we were just briefly chatting before the beginning of this episode. And when this came up, I told you, Chris, I was surprised to learn that. Definitely, as much as I interact with the US in my free time and in my professional time, somehow this went over my head. This term being signaling something like this. And I was also sharing with you that we were, GoForCon Europe, we're planning to have the space and setup that is um, accommodating for families, accommodating for people to bring one partner, whatever gender it's from, multiple partners, kids, and so on. So until <laughs> probably now we were talking about this between us in the organizers team as making this a family-friendly conference. So it's like I learned something today. Thank you. What is a better word to use to describe this type of setup? I feel like either just pointing out that like childcare is available, I think is one way of doing it. Like, hey, we have childcare, or just being like, you know, child friendly, or like kids are welcome, or something like that. Just make it like actually about the thing that you're trying to include, right? Because you're trying to say like, hey, if you have kids mm-hmm. and like you don't want to leave your 
partner at home with the kids, because that's a lot of burden on them, just bring them with you and we'll have spaces available to make it so it doesn't just feel like, oh, hey, you're just like in this space with your kids now and you don't get to like enjoy the space. So I think it's like you're thinking about people that have that type of family situation and wanting to welcome them into the space. So I think just pointing out like kid friendly or kids are welcome is a good stepping stone there, a good first step. I'd love it if we could finally get to the place. This is long down the road where it's just like kind of not like known that, yeah, like we're going to have childcare available because people have kids. So what are they, what are they supposed to do? There's like lots of single parents as well who have children. So it's like, mm-hmm. are they just not allowed to come to conferences because they're a single parent? Like, no, that's silly. So we should have these spaces in general for people. So yeah, I think if I read something, it's like, oh, like kids are welcome. Mm-hmm. I think that would be positive. I think it is, it's like a tough balance at the end of the day as well, though, because like mm-hmm. whenever you choose to kind of put the spotlight on something, you will always unintentionally kind of move the spotlight away from other things. So I can see some queer people feeling like, oh, this doesn't feel as inclusive to me or still feeling like it's a dog whistle of saying, oh, well, this is a space where I can't be my whole self because there will be children around. So there's always this like weird, delicate balance that needs to be struck. But I think in general, it is good to have spaces to you know, have childcare and have those sorts of things because it is necessary for a large swath of the population. I have multiple follow-up questions. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a very safe assumption to say that this word or this phrase in the announcement of GoferCon does not mean that, in my opinion. But I am not part of the queer community. What do you think? My opinion here is only a small thing, not being part of that. And this is not signaling to me. Yeah, it's definitely not intentional. You know, I know the people that organize GopherCon. I've been a conference chair before. Like, I do not think in any way that this was like an intentional, we're trying to include people. I mean, it'd be like stupid if it was anyway, because they're saying we're moving out of Florida because like of this bill that is against that's anti-queer. So I know they're not intentionally trying to do it. Which is, you know, good, but I think it's that unintentional side effect that these types of things tend to have on people that we have to start watching out for. You know, at the end of the day, being inclusive is more than just trying and more of what your intentions are. It's what your impact is at the end of the day as well. So avoiding these types of things. Like there was a similar problem. It might still be. I haven't checked up on it recently. But with the Gopher Slack, where there was this real name policy, which is also another anti-queer, anti-trans signal that happens. Because, you know, a lot of people that are trans don't go by their quote unquote real name or like whatever you would call it, like whatever is a real Mm, name. And then what does real name even mean? Exactly. So it's like those policies are also like dog whistles to conservatives saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you're welcome here. We're trying to like make sure that like the trans people aren't in this space because we make it more difficult for them to exist in it. It's always a, a difficult thing because I know at the end of the day, these people, they're Thoughts are in the right place. Their intentions are in the right place. Mm-hmm. It's just making sure that we have the impact at the end of the day that matches those intentions. Just calling things like this out a little bit or you know, some people calling in like this isn't meant to be art, like attacking Gopher Con or anything, obviously, or Gopher Slack. But just, you know, kind of pointing out to people like, hey, you should probably avoid these types of phrases in the future. And you should probably get some more queer representation in the room when you're crafting these types of things as well. Because I don't know if there's many queer people that would have saw the words family friendly for a conference space in the U.S. and would not have raised their hand and said, hi, like, this is a problematic phrase. We should probably use something else. Yeah. Another interesting thing to discuss is uh, when you say 
I don't know how to phrase that, the dry meaning of family friendly? Does it mean friendly for families that don't have kids? Can you bring a partner? Or if you have multiple, can you bring your partners? Is that part of what people would have in mind when saying that? And I can share that our thoughts in organizing the uh, GoForCon Europe is actually giving something like a we have not done this yet. We're still considering and would be interesting to hear what people think. But what we're considering is giving sort of a discounted ticket for partners who want to travel with their partners who do want to attend. But the partner who is not interested in go and will not be attending the conference talks will have some dedicated like space with Wi-Fi. So you can sit and have lunch with your partner and then you both both kind of split on like you work in the same space with a, with a person, but you so you only meet for coffee and lunch. Yeah. Does that include as a family thing? Hey, that's like amazing. I hope you guys actually do that because that would be like <laughs> so awesome. But I don't think in many people's minds in the US, when you say family friendly, that is that is what comes up. Like I feel like, you know, if I were to say like even pushing away the conservative stuff, if I hear the term family friendly, I'm specifically thinking about kids being included in this, mm-hmm. right? Because I think in the U.S. there's this kind of thought that a family, it's like, oh, if you just have a partner, you're like a couple. You're not really like a family yet. You're a family once you have kids. And obviously, like, I do not personally agree with that definition of family. Mm-hmm. But I think there, that's like the thing that gets kind of like bashed into our minds growing up in the U.S. is that it's okay, well, you're a family once you have kids, once you have grandkids, once you have this like kind of bigger unit that's more than just you and a single partner. And I think when it comes to the, you know, polyamorous community where you know there are multiple partners and all different types of defined relationships, I don't know if there's anybody in the US that would be like, yes, when we say family friendly, we mean people that are poly. I just don't think that would be something that would be like those people would believe or think that shouldn't be included. But I think that they wouldn't see that under the umbrella of family friendly. Ian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I just think, especially in the United States, like people have spent a lot of money over the last over the couple last couple of decades, like promoting the idea that a family is a man, a woman, and kids. And that's part of the problem with the phrase family friendly, right? It's that it alludes to this specific ideal of what some people think like life should be. And so yeah, I, I don't think when you say family friendly, it includes like partners or polyamorous people or at least I don't think most people will think of that. I don't even know if it includes like single parents with kids, really, because that's another thing in the U.S. It's just kind of like not really considered a family to a portion of the country. And I think that's like kind of like why this phrase is such like an awkward one. I have another suggestion as well, if you'd like it. of Just like try maybe just listing out these benefits that you have in like a prominent place of saying, hey, like we offer discounted tickets for partners and you get like these benefits just like make it prominent without necessarily having to like wrap it in some phrasing. So I think that's where you get into the the struggles of like trying to wrap things in phrasing. And that's where you run into a lot of these like, oh, well, these words make sense when you just kind of put them together. Like, oh, we want this to be friendly toward families. But it's like, oh, no, there's all this underlying historical terminology that we have to go deal with as a result of that. So just like, oh, no, here's like, here's some of the benefits. Call it out. Like, hey, traveling with a partner or partners, like, here's some benefits that might be useful to them. Like, here's a discounted ticket, and this is what they get for it. If slash when you are in a relationship, would you find it interesting to traveling with a partner who is not interested in Go? I'll defer to Ian. (laughs) No, I think so. Uh, Especially if it's like in uh, Chicago, I think a city that is popular for tourism. Like, yeah, of course. Like, especially if you're going to spend time before. Or any other conference also. 
Yeah, exactly. But if you're spending time before and after, I think that's a great option. But also just during the conference, I, I think it's a great option. I, I, I would consider it. Mm-hmm. You work in different companies. Sometimes your companies are sponsoring at those conferences, including different gopher cons. How do you see companies support such a decision? Do you expect most sponsors to say, yes, we support that. We will bear additional costs with you. We will back out. We will just stay out. Whatever we confirmed we'll do. You handle the additional costs. What do we expect from the different sponsors to do about such a decision? Not about your employer in general, about, I don't know whether your employer is even a sponsor generally. What do we expect from sponsors as people who work in companies who generally support the community? I mean, I think generally most companies are going to sponsor something like GopherCon wouldn't have a problem with this type of benefit or something. I mean, at least I hope they wouldn't. I think if, if they do have a problem, I think that's like a signal that like, hey, maybe this is a sponsor that you might not want to have. And that's like another, once again, when you want to be inclusive, when you want to grow a diverse community, there are sacrifices that have to be made. And sometimes that's Mm -hmm. like leaving money on the table from places that are not going to be supportive of the things that you value, right? So if you do value having, making it known that community members that have, say, multiple partners are welcome at the conference and you have a sponsor that's like, well, I don't want to support that. So I'm not going to give you money for that. Like that's a choice you have to make. Like, do you actually support that? Or were you just saying you support it until like it came, like push came to shove and you're like, well, I have to go leave this money on the table. So now it's like, okay, I actually don't support this type of thing. So I think like truly if like you as a conference organizer do support this sort of thing. And I think this applies broadly to the Go community as well and like things that aren't like anytime it comes with money, like even deciding to work at a company, right? It's like when it comes down to money, like that's where you really see what your values are at the end of the day. So it's like, are you willing to just like let let that money walk out the door and support this thing or have to figure out more logistics? Because yeah, there is associated costs with, you know, Mm -hmm. if you really are like giving someone use of a space, that's like another room or another space you have to get. You have to have, you know, there's more costs for Wi-Fi since you have more people on it. Obviously, if you're giving them food, that's like half the cost of your ticket right there. So that's a substantial cost. So it's like there is costs associated with doing this sort of thing. I hope that with the sponsors of things like GoForCon or GoForCon Europe, that they would not have a problem with these, with like calling out this type of arrangement. But yeah, I, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, if it was me personally, like if I was organizing a conference and a sponsor said, hey, I noticed that you have this benefit for like people's partners uh, and having this discounted ticket for them to use the Wi-Fi and get some food. Like, I think it's fine if you say like your partner, or your spouse, but if you allude to the fact they might have multiple partners, I'm not okay with this. I'd say, okay, well, here's your money back. Have a nice day. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be doing business with someone that's like drawing those types of lines around, you know, at the end of the day, what types of relationships are conference attendees are like allowed to be in like why should you as a sponsor get to dictate that sort of thing so yeah i guess that's my rambly point of view on that it's uh, particularly relevant because tomorrow begins the pride month yes or as i like to call it queer new year (laughs) (laughs) we can't be contained to a month so this is like the beginning of it especially in the u.s too because i think people have this assumption that's like hey pride month is june and there's pride in june i'm like no 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 there's prides in June, July, August, September, October, November. I don't know if there's any in December, but there's certainly some in February. So it really is like the beginning. It's like queer New Year. And then we like hibernate for like the spring months and then we come back and then it's New Year again. So but yeah, it's, it's coming up. Queer New Year is here. 
we have to prepare ourselves for the rainbow washing that will happen. I'm already like mentally fortifying myself to it. For those of you who don't know, rainbow washing is essentially like whitewashing, but for queerness. And for those who don't know, what's whitewashing? So whitewashing is, I guess it's easiest to describe it with an example. It's something that prominently happens in Hollywood, where you're casting a movie where like the cast should be predominantly Asian, yet somehow all of the main characters are like white people. That's like whitewashing. So it's just like, oh, well, we've put white actors and we're just pretending as if they are Asian or of Asian descent or Middle Eastern or whatever. So the same thing usually happens for all these companies that very much do not support queer rights and any other month of the year come around and they're just like, hey, we like queer people. Like, we're going to celebrate you now. Here's a bunch of, like, discounts. And there's this, like, perfect, and I don't know if it started on TikTok or Instagram or wherever, but it's just this, like, iconic thing that comes around every year where it's just, like, this person pretending to do, like, an ad. And it just starts with, like, hi, gay. And then it goes into all this other stuff. I hope we can find it and link it because it's just, like, absolutely amazing. But it, like it perfectly describes like what it feels like to be a queer person in in June. Cause it really is just like an assault of all of these companies that are like, I know that you like support, like you were against same sex marriage and yet you're coming out and you're like putting a, a float in the parade. Like <laughs> thanks for the money now, but how about you like support us all year long? So, so maybe another follow up question for companies who do think how to celebrate Queer New Year, <laughs> what would be a better thing to do other than just changing your logo to something within a flag, with a pride flag? There's always like the the monetary support you can give to organizations that help queer people, especially queer youth, especially trans youth, people in danger. So things like Donating to Trevor Project are immensely helpful. We'll add links at the end of the notes for those who listen. But yeah, I, I think it's just like, if you're doing it so that you can have some you get recognition for it. I think you're just doing it for the wrong reasons. And I don't know if there's like anything at the end of the day will like help fix that or repair that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I remember I was working at one company and there was this thing that happened that was like basically supporting anti-queer organizations. And a lot of employees were like, we don't feel great about this. And one employee was like, hey, how about we take all of the money we get from these anti-queer organizations and we actually just donate it to the Trevor Project or donate it to something. And they were told, no. And it's like, well, the company can't do that. And when asked why, it was like, well, we don't know how to market this. And we're like, but that's not the reason that you would do this thing. You would do this thing because it's like for the employees, for the people that are working here to know that the company does actually care and value them. So I think like that's that's also a sort of thing. Like if you're going after it just to at the end of the day be in this like, hey, we're getting recognition or we're making money off of it. I think that's like the wrong direction. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to, like, retitle this episode, like, Gay Time or something, because this is... <laughs> Special edition for Queer New Year. Yes, exactly. Happy Queer New Year, everybody out there. We'll put lots of rainbows around it. Can you somehow... I, I see I'm, I'm missing, like, one or two links, but something about generics and, like, being gender fluid. Oh. There must be something there. <laughs> right? Like it fits all sorts of things. Generics, a new feature rolled out for our generically gendered friends out there. (laughs) It's like your gender doesn't have to be static. It can be whatever you want it to be. And it's fine if your your decision is different from from the decision of your language of choice. Okay, we're like down a rabbit hole now. (laughs) 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 We're like, you know, drinking tea with the Mad Hatters. It's a time. (laughs) 